There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. It's the fighting. It's the fighting. Clock. It's the fighting. Interesting, mate, yeah. Welcome, listeners, to another episode of The Extra Inch. Uh, my name is Wendy. I'm here to host again, and I'm back with my sidekick and best friend, Barney. Hello, Wendy. With our tactics guy, Nathan A. Clark. Hi, mate. And I'm delighted to welcome uh, Daniel Story. Yeah. Delighted to be here. Daniel's from Football 365. He's their deputy editor. He was 2016's Football Supporters Federation Writer of the Year. What an honour. <laughs> and is also the author of Portrait of an Icon, which I'm sure we'll talk about shortly. Um, just before we crack on and talk about Daniel a bit more, I just wanted to say thank you very much to Spurs420, Jack Galo and Lord Styler for the iTunes reviews. Um, although the exponential growth theory of the last podcast hadn't worked. That was where you were all meant to tell someone about our podcast and then they were meant to tell someone else about the podcast. Yeah, that, that failed. So either try harder or we'll give up on that one. But we're going to talk about Daniel first and foremost today, I think. Um, thank you so much for coming, Daniel. It's great. And bizarrely, on my way in today, I was listening to you on the Totally Football Show and you were on there with Michael Cox, who's been on The Extra Inch, and also Duncan Alexander, who was on one of our early podcasts. So you've completed the hat trick. How is that, being on a Totally Football show? It's, it's great. I, I am still in the stage of my career, kind of four years in, where those sort of things, sitting across from James Richardson, um, makes me want to pinch myself a little bit. I still feel like I'm playing house. Um, so, yeah, it's great. And it's also, people ask us, oh, if you feel nervous or anything, talking on a podcast, but it's talking about football. Like you do it all the time. It's absolutely no difference. I know. No, it's great. The, that podcast is an absolute joy, partly because... James is just an amazing presenter and host um, and an icon from most of our childhoods, I'm sure. Um, but also that they get really different guests on, which is nice. It's not just football journalists, it's statisticians in Duncan and it's it's experts from different areas of football media, which I really like. And I think they're doing a good job of balancing that. Mm-hmm. Plus people who are experts on specific things, like they've got David Priest, who's kind of a goalkeeping mm-hmm. expert. Um, I was kind of expecting him to be on today talking about Hugo Lloris, but we might come back to that later. But Daniel, to go, sort of going back to um, your career and beginnings, where, where did it all start for you in terms of your writing about football? Uh, well, I, I, didn't, I don't have a journalism qualification to start with. I did accounting and law at university in Manchester, graduated in 2008. Um, Realised I wanted to go and travel and watch football. Uh, so saved up for a year and then 2009 for four, five or six months I went to Africa and Eastern Europe watching football uh, so it's like 40 odd games in five months or wow. whatever, which is great and got the bug for thinking actually I would love to write about this um, started blogging uh, the blog did okay got a couple of little bits of paid work and then I cannot pretend that knowing Nick Miller personally did not help he was a 365 at the time and they agreed to let me submit freelance pieces for free eventually kind of started getting a little bit of money through that and then when he left 
stepped into the breach. Uh, so I've, I am incredibly fortunate, and I, we might talk about this later, but I'm, I'm sad to say that I think people do need a massive bit of luck or leg up to get on in the industry now. It's, it's hard. But it sounds like you've pretty much, you've done your apprenticeship in, in football terms, and you've sort of, you've earned your badges in a way. I hope so, yeah. And working your way up. So what was your blog? Was your blog a kind of general football blog? Yeah, was it? It, was, it, was, it was me um, doing what a lot of bloggers do, which is, uh, assuming maybe that my opinions were valid and, and I think they were you know I think the writing was great but um, I was I was writing about mainstream stuff I was giving my opinion on things and you know I you know I got business cars made and handed them out to mates and went through all of that but I think that's good because it teaches if you can work and you can keep publishing stuff and keep it high quality when maybe no one's reading then I think it teaches you to the self-discipline to that you will need further down the line Definitely. We had a question from um, AG8AG on Reddit who said, do you have any advice for aspiring football writers? I guess that's part of it, just constantly writing. Constantly. Yeah, I, I worked for basically for two years and wrote every or four or five evenings a week and wrote at weekends as well um, to get a huge amount of stuff out there. So if anyone of note ever looked at the site, it would look as professional as I wanted it to and would sell me. That's all you've got. You know, we've got this with the Internet. You've got an opportunity to create something that effectively is your CV. Um, it's hard now, you know, there's hundreds, probably thousands of, of journalists or sports journalists graduates every year and there are very few jobs and it's a, it's an industry in which because people love doing it, very few people fall out of. My my biggest piece of advice would be to just read and read and read as much as you can. We're, we're incredibly fortunate in this country and with the internet that you can get a huge amount of content for free. Um, reading that, making notes on it, making notes of ideas, going out on the ground, going to games, trying to get interviews with, you know, even at lower non-league level, just to get a grounding in it. But it's 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 damn hard. I can't sit here and pretend that there's an opportunity for everyone because there's some great people who who won't succeed in it, and that's it's quite sad. But it's just the reality, really. Yeah, and I think we're quite lucky when you talk about re- constantly reading things. We're quite lucky at the moment. There's a really good set of sort of new football writers and journalists who were just starting to get known and get seen and, and they're quite inspirational I think for young writers. Yeah they are and, and, and it's important to see that there is an element of, of meritocracy about the industry which is you know it's not always the way. Um, the cream doesn't always get to rise to the top just because there's not opportunities for everyone. So it, yeah it is good that, that there are kind of um, yeah there are examples to follow and that there are Heroes is, is too strong a word, but there are... Um, role models, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. And, and role models, not just for, for writing, but for, for the hard work element of it, because it's, it's a huge... People see it as a, as a brilliant industry to work in, and it is, and I pinch myself every day, as I say, but it is also, you know, it's also 70-hour, 80-hour weeks just to feel like you're chasing your tail. I mean, that's, 70 hours is long. That's, and I guess it's an industry where your professional life and your personal life kind of blend into one in a sense mm. particularly as you're, you're quite exposed I think as a writer and as a kind of especially on Twitter and social media generally you're, you're quite exposed um, so you must find at times that they sort of blur into one and actually you're doing something for fun and then you're making it into an article yeah, to do your yeah and, I, and I'm a you know I'm a fan first and foremost and yeah. was before and will be after and am during um, so everything I take on board with my own club or any other club yes it does feel like work and Twitter is the best and worst thing for that because it's very addictive it's very um, ego driven uh, you use it as ego massage and 
yeah, that's the, as I say, that's the best and worst of the world because you're constantly on it. You're constantly on it, and doing that means you're constantly working, even though you might think it's pleasure. It's not. It's 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 part of work. And you know, I might go to bed and start reading a book about football, and while I'm lying in bed at eleven o'clock at night, I'm also thinking, actually, there could be an article in this because I could look at that and that and that, and you think. It's no wonder you get a headache. It's no wonder you're not sleeping. You know, it's just how it works. Never switched off. So, what's the nature of your role now at Football Three Six Five? I'm 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 lucky in that I can go to work, and that's in a metaphorical sense because I work from home most of the time. But I can go to work, and my editor Sarah Winterburn, who is brilliant, um, says, "What do you want to write about today?" You know, I do do news stuff. I do do the mailbox. I do do gossip columns because there's only three full-time staff at Football 365 and we have to try and get as much content as we can out of our three staff and it isn't viable for me to sit and take a day over a piece. It simply isn't. So I might get three hours to research and do a piece or I might get two hours or I might get an hour and a half and just have to do a feature. But yeah, we, we, we have to work as hard as we can and we have to chase our tails because there's no other way. We are competing against the big boys because... The internet, you know, readers on the internet don't make any difference between, they don't make any dissociation between The Guardian or ESPN or The Daily Telegraph or Football 365. They just see somewhere to yeah. go and read an article. Um, and often they're not even reading the article on that website directly. They might be reading it on an aggregator or yeah, on Reddit course, if someone's yeah. posted it. So Yeah, yeah. So I, yeah, I do everything really in that effect. Um, I prefer writing. I probably write between twenty and 25,000 words a week just because... That's what time allows and that's what I enjoy doing. I think that's what I'm good at. Um, so practice makes perfect and I am now able to get pieces out, hopefully eloquent, pretty quickly. Um, one of the things that the site is famous for is a 16 conclusions thing on big games. When I first started that, it was two and a half, three hours after full time we were getting 2,000 words out. Now I can get 2,800 words out within an hour of full time um, and that's how you get traffic obviously mm-hmm. everyone knows that the quicker the better yeah. it's, it's a shame in the industry now that it's more important to be fast than to be best yeah. but that is the case so you have to try and find a middle ground that's interesting this kind of ties back into the conversations we had with Jack Pitbrook and Dan Kilpatrick about that exact point uh, so it's interesting to hear hear that come up again um, in terms of that 16 conclusions I, th- I just think you always you're on the money and you capture the mood of different fan bases really really well certainly I mean I, I always read the 16 conclusions when you write them about Spurs and you're not a Spurs fan you're a Forest fan mm. um, but you seem to have a really good knack of knowing how Spurs fans are feeling about issues and I, I think you do the same thing from every club and I think that's uh, credit credit to you for being able to do that how do you manage that is that through do, do you keep your ear to the quite close to the ground on Twitter and on I, blogs and things I'm not going to try and sell myself down but I think as a football fan, before being a writer, I think there are a number of universal truths that we all want for our clubs. I think we all want a club we can be proud of. We want a club we can like as well as love. I think we all want the moment of walking out of a ground on a Saturday or Tuesday and realising the week's going to be better because our team has won. And we want players we can and managers we can have an affiliation towards. And I don't think that changes whether you support Nottingham Forest or Tottenham or Tamworth or whoever or Trabzonspor or you know anyone across the world. That doesn't change. So... To me, after that, it's all a matter of research and then it becomes a question of familiarising yourself with with what goes on within that club. And, you know, I get things wrong like everyone gets things wrong, but reading, 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 reading about clubs, reading 
forums or reading fanzines or reading magazines or reading articles, you can absorb a lot of information very quickly and very cheaply. Um, and then the only other thing I'd say is, is it's too hard to write things you don't believe. I think you're too quickly now in the age of the internet get caught out for doing that. Mm. And there are football writers who either choose to do that or have pressure upon them in their jobs to do that. They have to write big opinions and they have to write things that they, may, they maybe don't believe. And I think they get caught out pretty quickly doing it. Um, I'm lucky in that I'm never asked to write something I don't believe, which makes it very easy. You know, 16 conclusions is, to me, quite an easy piece to read. It's noticing 16 things that have happened in a match and making my own opinion upon them. That doesn't take me very long to have an opinion. It's just about expressing that opinion in, in written form, which you get better at over time. Um, so, no, I... I don't think it's a case of me keeping the ear to the ground. I think it's a case of clubs generally and fandom working pretty similarly across the board, whether it's National League North level or Premier League level. It's just about adapting and the research after that. I guess we all like to think we're unique, but actually we're pretty <laughs> yeah, much all no, the same, aren't I'm we? I'm a robot, really. Yeah. Do you ever find that you've got 12 conclusions and you're you're scraping a barrel for those last four and you're thinking, I've got to get something, that you end up just chucking any old thing in? Or splitting I, I, one into two somehow. Yeah, I'm, I'm happier to say that I'm a waffler as a writer. <laughs> that, that's my that's my disadvantage as a writer, as I'm a waffler. So I'm I'm happy to say that it's more the, a case of deleting than adding them. <laughs> um, but no, I, I honestly don't think so. I mean, obviously, if you read a few of them, you can probably spot that if there's three conclusions about the team news uh, or about the shape of the teams, then, then there probably wasn't a lot happening <laughs> in the game. But, but the thing is with the Premier League, Ever increasingly, um, there's so much noise around matches that less and less you're restricted to what goes on between the 90 minutes. Of course, it's a match reaction piece and you've got to be careful to to not get encapsulated by this kind of football celebrity culture we've all been um, kind of dipped in uh, and some of us held below the water, I think. But um, yeah, it, it's, it's, it's increasingly easy to find conclusions because so much is happening. Um, there's 22 players and two managers and... To be honest, you could probably make a conclusion about each one of them in each game, and that's not even touching the wider picture. So. How do you feel about the increasing kind of soap opera nature around football? Uh, it, it saddens me as a as a football fan because I remember, even in my lifetime, you know, I'm only 32, but even in my lifetime, first season ticket in 1990-1991, obviously as a kid, it just being about going to the game, but even at 16, 17, just about going to the game. Mm-hmm. Uh, and... The celebrity side of it annoys me more than the transfer side of it because the transfer side of it, I think, I think the reader gets angry about. Oh, it's all about transfers, but they read it. So I think we're all kind of we're all in the same boat on that. You can't. It's difficult to criticize something that gets absorbed so readily. The celebrity side of it, is, to me, is is trash. Yeah. Uh, and I've no, I've no interest in it as a writer. I've no interest in it as a football fan. And and for, even further than that, I, I actually struggle to comprehend how anyone does have an interest. I I, I honestly. It amazes me that someone might care who Alex Oxley Chamberlain's girlfriend is, yeah. or what they did that day. It, it, I cannot fathom how people will read that stuff and how it does well. It clearly does, and it's clearly not aimed at me. And I'm thankful for that. But yeah, it saddens me, uh, and it, yeah, I find it baffling, quite frankly. Yeah, and I find the whole kind of circus now with the pre-match press conference, the whole build-up now that a match is spread over three days. I just find it's too saturated. It's too much mm. going around it now. Whereas, who, who really cares about a pre-match conference? But now everything is a new story. Every game is sound bites, pre, after, during. For me, it's a little bit too much now. I'd mm. like it to go back to just 
the football. Yeah, I, I don't disagree. I, I think there is a, an obvious reason for it, and that's that 15, 20 years ago, when the internet started being a, a medium for football coverage, nobody thought that they should charge for the product, which means that we're all in a race to get revenue, and revenue comes from advertising, and advertising comes through clicks. And mm-hmm. so it makes sense to split one story into four and hope you get even two and a half times as many clicks on it. Yeah. And inevitably, the quality dies down. And we're all, I hope, um, in the industry who have some pride in their work, are kind of trying to rail against that because I hope that there is still a room for high quality football writing. And yeah, I'm sure there is. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm on the same page as you with that. So we've been talking about some of your pieces, which you, you you're pretty good at bashing out quickly. <laughs> but that that almost clashes with what you've been doing recently, which is. You've written a book, mm-hmm. so you wrote Portrait of an Icon, and you're now in the midst of writing a new book. Yeah. How how does that, do you feel kind of, do you feel like a fish out of water when you're doing that, or does that come just as naturally? Uh, it's, no, it doesn't come naturally, well, it, it, it doesn't only come naturally only because I've never done it before. Uh, Portrait of an Icon was a, a kind of um, cheat, because it's a half job in that it's a, a collation of 58 portraits of people, so it's very easy. It's ninety thousand words, very easily split down into manageable chunks. Um, the, the the latest book, which uh, I can't really talk about, but will be known in a in a month or so, um, was a bit different. Um, it's a it's a thirty thousand word book, so it's shorter. Um, but that was straight writing, and that was yeah challenging. Less about the writing and more about the fact that I was doing it around five and a half day a week job and extra freelance bits and podcasts and so on and so forth. Um, but yeah, I think it's good to be challenged. Um, like I always joke to my girlfriend and she'll say, you know, you're working till late. And again, I'm like, yeah, but it's not being a war correspondent. It's not hard. If you're going to do a job that you absolutely love, you should have to work damn hard at it. Otherwise, you don't deserve it, in my opinion. Now, that might sound a bit cliched, but I, I honestly believe that. So, yeah, and I, I like to be proud of what I write. And I'm only going to be proud of what I write if I commit fully to it. So, yeah, it was hard, but, you know... Hard and inverted commas. We're not going down the mines. Let's be honest. <laughs> and is this is this the start of a, a series of books? Would you say is this something you want to do more? Of? Uh, I it, I think it's hard to do around full time work without mm. half breaking yourself. Right. Quite frankly, um, so I'm not committing either way. Yeah. But yeah. At Football three six five because I work from home and because it's in the room next door to the bedroom takes over everything because it's a five and a half day a week job and. When you add the extra stuff, you have to be careful because the only thing I think that would would ever stop me or people like me from leaving the industry is burnout, and I think it's a rele- you know a relevant concern. Mm, mm. Um, but no, I love I love writing, so yes, I would love to do more books, but it's just time. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm looking forward to <laughs> a new one. Uh, Thank yeah. you. Yeah, well, obviously we'll help promote that when it when it when it finally comes out. Um, so we got a question on Reddit from James C Diamond, and I. I put this in here because I thought it was quite an interesting question he said would Football 365 ever consider fronting or supporting a campaign on something like the lack of knowledge of the laws of the game among pundits also among away fans oh sorry away fans getting screwed over by matches being moved for TV or some similar annoyance that doesn't get enough attention I think they are there are two very different topics brought up in that yeah, same question yeah. I think fan issues I'd like to think I cover those or and we cover them as a site I hope that the reason I won that award was because it was a fan award and I write for fans and I write on fan stuff and I have written about ticket prices and I've written about safe standing and I've written about being able to 
drinking stands now. And I believe, though, in those things because I'm, a, as I say, I'm a fan as well, mm. and I, those issues affect me. Um, where 365 getting behind as a campaign, you know, maybe, but I think we, I think the site is able to split ourselves down into writers. And if someone really believes something, then they get to write it. There's no, there's very little editorial control of what I do. So if I, if I want to do something, then I'll do it, which is nice. And that includes, yeah, that includes fan issues. Yeah. I like the laws of the game concept. <laughs> I think there's a series there. there yeah. I, I, there are, there is a problem with pundits knowing yeah. the laws of the game. I'm not sure it necessarily needs a campaign, um, <laughs> but Fine. I, I've made the mistake myself of um, of going on Twitter after a contentious issue and stating my opinion vehemently as to what should have happened, and then someone said, "Actually, no, it's not quite right. You've, <laughs> you've got the wrong end of the stick with that off cycle, and it's, you have to suddenly backtrack, and it's all very embarrassing." You backtracked. I did. Yeah. No. Wow. I know. I know. Never seen that. You would never. You would never backtrack, would you? But... <laughs> 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 Another question from uh, Slizzard on Reddit, who said, "Do you feel football journalists are lampooned more than traditional journalists because the subject matter?" Is often more contentious and accessible. And how do you deal with that vitriol? I think, I think there has been a change since even since I started four years ago, uh, in the uh, the extremism of feedback, should we say? Um, and there's no getting away from the fact that that feedback is is to do with with bias or the accusations of bias. Right. Um, I understand where that's come from. I think that in general, in in life. Um, there is a, an increasing extremism of views, an increasing tribalism um, that not only is my view held by me, it should be held by other people and other people that don't hold it um, should be criticised for that. And, and it's clear that social media has had a huge role in that because it provides a comparative anonymity for people to do that. And I, yeah, as I say, I've noticed that. I'm not sure about football journalists are lampoon more because I'm sure political journalists are lampoon just as much. I don't think this is a football issue. I think it's a you know, cultural issue. Um, but there is an increased tribalism in football, which I kind of think, I wonder if it's come from, from football's increased commercialisation mm. and the increased price of that people pay to watch and follow their team. Because that can only lead to increased loyalty and an increase, I want more for my money. And I think when you have that increased loyalty, that increases tribalism inevitably. Uh, and that's where this has come from. This has come from anything you say about my club sh- is should be um, should be ignored and or attacked. Yeah. It should also be said we are still talking about a minority of people. Yeah. Football journalists get very annoyed, and football writers get very annoyed, and I get sometimes very annoyed about you've you've worked for two hours on something and you you've done the research and you've written it, um, and you just get a reply that goes, oh, "That's crap or whatever." Mm. Now. Of course, people are going to get annoyed about that, but so what? You know, it's, as I say, it's not war correspondency. It doesn't matter at the end of the day, uh, and it, this is a minority because the, the the amount of people that go on Twitter to abuse people is a huge minority. And most fans, you know, I I'm a Forest fan, and I'm the most critical of Forest in what they do, and I think most supporters are like that the set as well. Um, but no, I. I don't think football journalists are more lampooned to, to answer the question in a very roundabout way. Mm-hmm. I think that, that all journalists are and that if any industry committed to social media as much as journalism and writing has had to, to, to increase the traffic on their pieces and to increase exposure, they would be getting the same feedback because I think it's a general trend in, in social life, really. I mean, we've seen um, this season the kind of tribalism involved with Liverpool fans. Originally, we had the kind of diving from Delhi and Kane. Oh. 
and now we've got the shoulder goal and everything and it's just Liverpool they just seem to get together and anything that's written pro Spurs that doesn't matter what it is that's their first agenda to get in there and comment on diving on goals from the shoulder and stuff there's an like element that. of this that, though, that isn't that isn't about lampooning people it's just it's about winding people up it's about knowing to get a reaction isn't mm-hmm. it there's an element of that that is you know if I'm an Arsenal fan I know until recently to point to St Tottenham's Day and then make a big deal of it because I know that it will annoy X percentage of those fans and X percentage of that percentage will get annoyed enough to get riled and reply and then we have an argument and everyone feels somehow better about themselves <laughs> for it I don't know how but yeah so and, and social media has increased that massively yeah. uh, partly because of it's a percentage of fans that don't go to games and mm. therefore the only way for them to absorb their club is by almost proving them their loyalty and by pro- the, the, the way they prove their loyalty is not by going to the matches it's by um, attacking anyone that has a different yeah. opinion to them which is mad to me but so be it uh, and yeah part of it is old fashioned well I suppose the word's trolling now I guess um, back in the day if, like, if Spurs had done something and upset Crystal Palace I would not be able to find a Crystal Palace yeah. fan yeah. whereas now I can just go to Twitter <laughs> and I can, I can annoy thousands at once <laughs> exactly yeah and it, to be honest it's important to say that 90 I don't know what percentage but a very high percentage of it is, is pretty well if not well-meaning, certainly well-natured and kind of, mm-hmm. in inverted commas, banterous. Um, there's a very small percentage of it, but there's, you know, there's dicks everywhere. Yeah, there's yeah. obviously idiots that will yeah. do this everywhere. And, and, and Twitter and social media brings them out from under the rocks, I suppose. Do you guys get accused of bias? Uh, not really, because I'm, I almost exclusively write about Spurs and, and, and that's sort of accepted. Um, I have a couple of times written sort of like about Liverpool. I've managed to avoid writing about Arsenal, even though I've been tempted. And they've been, well, you would say that because you're a Spurs fan. So yeah, I, I've got a little bit out of that. Me? Well, um, I normally get accused of just following my own opinions and like trying to find anything to validate my own. <laughs> that's what, that's, just a little secret, that's what we're all doing. Yeah, <laughs> that's, no, like, I mean, that's so true, though, I'm not it? biased towards Tottenham, I'm biased towards me. So. <laughs> yeah, I, I was just, we had the conversation in our WhatsApp group yesterday about um, me and Trippier and the fact that he's just not my cup of tea. And mm. I, 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 can't, I will get quite a few people saying, yeah, but you hate Trippier. I'm like, well... To some degree, yeah, but it's, it's more it's more a stylistic thing. I'm trying mm-hmm. to sort of explain away the fact that yeah, I am biased against Trippier because he's not my type of preferred fullback. But I don't hate Kieran Trippier as a person, no, and I have anything yeah. against him. It's there's, just... a, there's a difference between like every writer is biased because you have bias yeah. is just an opinion. There's a difference mm-hmm. between bias and an agenda. Exactly. There's a difference between thinking something about something and having a preconceived idea of something <laughs> and judging everything on that preconceived yeah. idea. And that, there are so few, I promise you, so few football writers that have a preconceived ideas and will write anything towards that. There are a couple, but everyone knows who they are because there's a reason they have that agenda. Yeah. Either they have a foot in a camp or yeah. they have a personal or financial reason to do that. Yeah. So it's pretty obvious pretty quickly and everyone else has just, just got opinions. Or, which or, is... or they're being fed information from a certain yeah, of course, source yeah, and yeah. So they want to present that information favourably. Yeah, but even, I mean, even that, that's always gone on and that's kind of a... Part, to an extent, I think that's absolutely fine yeah. as long as they're pretty open about it. Um, the issue comes when you suspect that they are trying to avoid uh, being known for that. And yeah. as I say, that there are one, maybe two in the industry that do that and it's pretty obvious who they are. So We'll move on. So, I mean, actually, can I just ask you this one last thing? We, we did mention Totally Football mm. Show, but Plateau of the Ages on Reddit said 
Daniel, do they kiss Jimbo's bald head before each podcast? Sort of Bartez, long, yeah. long situation. <laughs> I enjoyed uh, that. No, I am still, uh, as I say, still in the pinch myself. So if I stayed with uh, with Jimbo, he is a lovely man. Oh, uh, so glad to hear you say that. And yeah, he is. He is. He is. He is an absolute professional. He's a lovely man. So there's no need for me to kiss his bald head. Right? <laughs> I suspect that would end our. Um, if it, if it is a friendship, it would end it. <laughs> What they can't see because of the the podcast format is that he sits on a throne in recordings, doesn't he? No one picks that up. Everyone else at his feet. Yeah, yeah. on your knees. We all made the crown. Yeah. <laughs> so we're going to talk about um, the perceptions of Spurs as a club and set of fans. And I, I guess it um, sort of ties onto, in a sense, what we've been talking about and the fact that I do think you capture the mood of, of Spurs so well. But just sort of generally, what do you, what do you make of Spurs... Previously and now, because I think there's two different spurs, yes. aren't there? Yeah, well, well, to touch on the, the the previously, and it's probably the only negative thing I'll say about Spurs, certainly at the moment, and probably even the future is. I think there is um, certainly, to my mind, we cannot overlook the fact that Spurs got lucky with Richard Pochettino. I think they were they were a club that were lurching between managers, so they went from Harry Redknapp to Andre Villas Boas to Tim Sherwood, which is difficult to imagine two bigger leaps yeah. in, ex- in extremes. Now, the, the clubs have always done that and there's a reason for doing that. If something else isn't working, let's move on to, to the opposite and see if that works. Um, I think they got lucky with Mauricio Pochettino in the sense that he has been absolutely perfect for his job and he has improved as a coach from his days at Southampton more than anyone thought was possible. I don't know if Daniel Levy thought that was possible. If he did, that's not my mind to say he's lucky. What they have certainly done is they have fully merited that luck in hindsight because they have gone about everything, to my mind, pretty much everything, in the right way since then. Um, I think they're a club that um, considers the long term as well as the short term, which is um, very unusual. Um, but they also understand the need for progress on a season-by-season basis. And they've pretty much done that from, from, from minute dot since Pochettino walked in. Uh, they are a club that plays football in inverted commas the right way. They are a club that um, I wouldn't say necessarily believes in giving young players a chance um, t- in terms of, I don't think they falsely do that, but they are a meritocracy. Every player goes to Mochino on a level footing and it doesn't matter who you are or what age you are or where you came from, Pochettino will give you the same chance. And I love that in him as a coach. And I think that is why the only possible downside in the future is what happens post-Pochettino. Because if I was the owner of an elite club now, I would be falling over myself to try and have a you know whisper sweet nothings in his ear because he is, to my mind, that he, he if he's not the most overachieving coach in the country, you can talk about Sean Dyche and players like that, he is the most overachieving a coach who look, already looks a ready-made fit for an elite club, I think. Mm. Um, and that is to, um, to Daniel Levy's credit that he has backed him and you know, shown faith and given him um, the authority to do as he sees fit. Um, it's, it's, it's all a good news story to my mind. I think, I think, partly maybe even Spurs fans, but certainly non-Spurs fans need to remember to take a step back and look at where Spurs have come from because there is a danger, I think, with him and of the club of kind of normalising overachievement, mm. of, of, of taking this for granted when it really, really shouldn't be because you are the only club that will finish in the top four for the last three seasons in a row. Uh, and that is extraordinary, given where you were when Villas-Boas left. Um, and given how 
you know the Sherwood era as well. It's madness. It's absolute madness. It's great, but it's madness. To yeah, me. I, I still think we're we're all kind of pinching ourselves on a, on a weekly basis, or the rational fans are pinching themselves on a weekly basis. Yeah, I, I think Daniel Levy tried this a few times with Santini, Arneson, Yol, yeah. but he's never. It has never worked because he never got a manager like Pochettino and he never had the kind of Harry Kane as well. Mm. None of them had... We had Gareth Bale, which was a little bit different, but they never had a Harry Kane. So it's really nice to see it happen. Um, I start to get the feeling that Pochettino will probably be here for the long term. I think he's got another couple of years left in him. And going forward, I don't know, I think this season has shown that we are still a good team. We're overachieving. I'm very happy with what we've done, but I think... I think this summer is going to be quite crucial. I think we've got a lot of work to do if we want to bridge that gap to Manchester United. When you say work, do you mean tying down players mostly or do you mean replacing? I think we've had the younger squad for a while and it's now two or three seasons and I think we need to replace certain parts of it. Certain cogs in the machine need to need, uh, need oiling and changing. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Um. So, so what about Spurs of yesteryear? I mean, when you grew up, Spurs and Forest must have been pretty much similarly sized clubs, I thought, and, yeah. and roughly <laughs> parallel. <laughs> yeah, it's not gone that well since, no, has it? No, um, I, feel a bit, I feel like I'm, I'm yeah, kicking we, your puppy again. No, 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 it's fair enough. I mean, uh, Spurs to me, there was always a, a stat that I remember about Spurs, and I, I don't know the exact years, but it was I think it was about 15 years in which Spurs never finished in the bottom six and never finished in the top six. And... Forest were always the kind of chaos club to me in that. They were the, almost the opposite in that, you know, we finished third in the Premier League in 1995, which is mad. And we've, we've been in League One for three seasons since we've been in the Premier League. And we're chaotically run and Spurs are complete opposite again now. So we've all, although we've always, for a period of time, we were kind of not rivals, but, you know, we had good games against each other. And there were games I remember from my childhood and, you know, my first season ended with a with a cup final in '91, and, but yeah, we we are running very very differently, um, and yeah, it's not we've not played you that recently other than cup competitions because we've been dreadful. But yeah, I, I've I've always loved lots of Spurs. My my brother supports Spurs, um, my stepbrother supports Spurs, and um, you are a club that's very easy to like um, unless you are live elsewhere in North London <laughs> I've had it the other way around for some reason growing up I always had affiliation towards Nottingham Forest I don't know why maybe it was Stuart Pearce Des mm. Walker but it was something about those guys that just made me like it like them and Nigel Clough I mean and even I was that Neil Webb popped in my head yeah. and Ian Wone these are players which for some reason we, just we are we are we seem to be even kind of now the kind of perennial people's second club in that there's this, I suppose it's, it harks back to Clough days, basically, mm. but there's this sense that we deserve to be in the Premier League, which we absolutely don't, by the way. Um, but yeah, we are, we have been likeable. I'm not sure we are anymore, but we're just another run of mill championship club at the moment, I, shambolically I, run. But yeah, I I have fond memories of Spurs from, from childhood. Anyway, we, we, we I remember one of my first away days, we beat you 4-1 at um, White Hart Lane and... Lars Wahinen scored a goal of such quality that the Spurs fans clapped. And I remember just being, thinking that was the greatest thing ever, that opposition fans would clap our goal. I think I might have been there. I think I remember the goal. And, and I sort of agree with Bardi that Forest have always been one of those clubs that I've always looked out for and I've, I've never had a problem with them. And I, I kind of always associated them. I'm, I'm sort of similar age to you. I'm a couple of years mm. older than you, but I associated them with Britpop and, mm. and that period where they had... Um, some quite quite flamboyant players, I suppose, yeah. in, in likes of Van Hooydonk. Um 
Brian Roy. Yeah, Roy and Bohenan was great. Bohenan was fantastic. I, Ian Wome was a big favourite of mine. He's <laughs> one of my favourite non-Spurs players at that point. And you had a player, I, I want to say his name's McGregor, he fronted yeah. a band as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, 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 he basically played very few games for us, but he scored, when we when we finished third in 94-95, the, the um, UEFA Cup, as it was then, run the following season. We got to the quarterfinals and eventually lost to Bayern Munich. Um, and he scored the winner in one of those, scored an overhead kick, which kind of made him his cult hero. But yeah, he had, he absolutely had that Floppy, Britpop yeah. look. Yeah. And then he left, he basically left the game and yeah, started a band and fronted a band who did reasonably well. I think they had a top 30 single. So he did um, better in music than football, really. Was it Paul McGregor? Yeah, Paul yeah. McGregor, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's, thing, it's strange the way your memory... Uh, there also have been a number, there have been quite a lot of links between... So obviously with with Reed and Jenis and Dawson and there's been quite a few mm-hmm. Forest Spurs links that have, have well Andy Reed's probably one of my from my favourite Forest players. Really? So I remember his goal for for you against Everton that five one when he five one I think he's got an absolute scream yeah. for Spurs. Uh, he he frustrating. He I just never ever. He wasn't a Premier League player because he was he was we we used to have a player called John Robertson who won the European Cup with us. And he was fine in the 70s and 80s because he, it was okay to be a bit of a drinker Tubby, yeah. and, a bit of, yeah. and he toured up. And that was Andy Reid, basically. He was John Robertson Mark II, so he was never a Premier League player. He had so much ability. He's a, he's a little bit like Lee Tomlin, who you've got now, in that he's got loads of ability, but absolutely no physicality at all. Yeah. Can't get about the pitch. He should have just been playing central midfield, basically. He should have remodelled himself. He's the only man who would could... If he had a one-on-one, you'd prefer him to try and chip the goalkeeper from sort of 25 yards <laughs> and actually try and take it round. Yeah, no, I love reading. I love it. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Cool. So, uh, I mean, the other thing to, to mention, I suppose, or to ask you, is whether you have any insight on Spurs from, from the work you do. And, and, I mean, have you met Pochettino or been to No, I haven't. No, I mean, I, I'm always at pains to say, and it sounds quite wanky, really, but I'm always at pains to say that I'm, I'm a writer, not a journalist. I don't right. go out and get the news. I offer opinion on it. And there's a huge difference to that. And I think some of the questions about whether journalists get lampooned, Maybe they do more than I know, but as a writer, it's somewhere different. So no, I don't pretend to to, to get news. I I am very much have the easy side of it, and <laughs> I just get to offer opinions on it, which is, yeah, that's the easy part. That's the fun bit as well, isn't yeah. it? <laughs> so so we're going to talk a little bit about um, similar theme again, media narratives. So mm. this season for Spurs has been littered with what what fans have declared media narratives. Mm. So the first one or the first one that we're going to talk about is Pochettino needing to win a cup. And this this sort of came about around Christmas, I think, but it's been lingering on ever since. Yeah. And 
everyone's had their say on on the matter. And where do you think these sort of where do you think these things come from? I, I don't know if I'm not sure if it's a media narrative in that. Look, there's not a secret club where everyone goes and goes, right, this is this week's topic. Obviously not. I think journalists and writers have opinions because they're fans and they write on those fans and, and some of them will think, oh, right, he needs a trophy, otherwise it's not going to work. And I personally think the opposite. I think that you get enough moments out of being Real Madrid or um, watching Harry Kane score winners that you don't need those cup moments. But it should be said, there are... Tottenham fans and I've spoken to them who who also believe that Pochettino needs a trophy because they want to win the FA Cup and it's important to them. So I don't think it's just a media thing. I think I think what it is is a difference of opinion. Um, I, narratives, to my mind, narratives are just a group of people having sharing the same opinion who happen to write it at a similar time. Now it's no coincidence that people will write that about Pochettino at a similar time because. You know, you went out, the, he said he wasn't that bothered about the League Cup and then you lost to West Ham and it kind of played out. He said he wasn't that bothered about the FA Cup and then you got through. So I'm sure Mauricio Pochettino wants to win a trophy. Of course he does. Um, and I'm sure every Tottenham fan would rather win the FA Cup than not win the FA Cup. Do I think it's a huge deal if you don't win the FA Cup this season? No, I don't. Um, as long as Mauricio Pochettino doesn't think it's a great deal because actually he is the persona grata at the moment. He is the, the kingmaker at Tottenham. Levy might have the power, but Pochettino has got, you know, the the ability to make Tottenham better than they are, better than they ever have been, to my mind. So as long as he's not bothered, I don't think anyone else should be. Um, but I, ca- I can see why people say it matters um, because I can remember a list of FA Cup winners. I can't remember a list of every English team where they finished in every season. Um, but having come from where you came from now finishing the top four matters more than winning domestic trophies there's no doubt about that that they can't be yeah I agree and it it kind of happens as well because we buried the St. Tottenham thing and then Arsenal went on to win the win the FA Cup then all of a sudden the the conversation comes up what's more important finishing where we finished or Arsenal celebrating the FA Cup so and media narratives happen because it's a discussion point and it is a fair enough discussion point to have do I personally think Pochettino needs a cup just to kind of put his stamp on the club and be part of the history that he's done so much for us and he's achieved so many good things and made us the team we are today that it would be nice that in the future when people talk to their kids oh we won the FA Cup and Pochettino Mm. is the manager that is for his legacy but for right now no I don't think it's important it's something for him to look back on in the future you don't get um, a parade or um, a celebration when you turn the big four into the big six but what it does is changes the long-term future of the club um, I think we will win a cup in the near future and when we do it will be incredible because it will be a moment that captures the journey the club has made but that journey is the league difference rather than the cup difference mm. and as, as Liverpool showed that they beat Man City and it's harder to win the Premier League than it is win two games Liverpool beating Manchester City doesn't make Liverpool better than Manchester City Manchester City winning the league makes them the best team in the country no matter what Liverpool fans say so that's what really matters ultimately the league and the cups it's like a it's like the decorations that go around it it's things to add to it what Pochettino's done is amazing and now we just need the kind of little bit of glitter to put on top of it kind of thing so that's one narrative second one which has been nagging away at me and I do think this is um, a slightly different case. It's the, the Deli Alley one and the, uh, mm. the, the the talk of him being almost an unruly child who needs to grow up and change his behaviour. Because I think 
from, as Spurs fans, we've seen tremendous growth in him as a person and as a professional, and and his the way he handles himself on the pitch, and he is restrained now, and he does hang back, and you know he's still he's still a wind up merchant, and we, mm. we never want him to change, and that bit of needle is what makes him what the, the player he is, and gives him the X factor. But the media seem to be set on this idea still of of his the way he behaves being wrong. Um, he's he's, he's Diving this year has become a huge issue amongst mm. fans and, and and the media, and I, I sort of feel like he gets a bit of the Raheem Sterling treatment in the sense that he's this kid that's come from an underprivileged background. It's not very sexy. He's he's been basically adopted by another family mm-hmm. um, because his parents couldn't look after him properly. Um, he's he's got a bit of a chip on his shoulder. He's he's cocky, and Pop just had to have words of him and take him yeah, under yeah. his wing a little bit. And I, I do feel like he's treated differently to other players of a similar age with similar behavioural traits. Yeah, I, I think it stems from the fact that his form has been worse this season than last season. I don't think that's without doubt. It has not been disappointing. He's not had a bad season. But clearly, it's not been as good or certainly not. he's not continued the trajectory, which may well have been an unrealistic trajectory anyway. Um, and because of that, I think people will look to question why. Now, to my mind, the answer is he's a young kid. He's nev- never going to be consistently brilliant. He's always going to have setbacks. Marcus Rashford's another one this season. We don't need to question why. It, that just happened. He's a young kid. Um, I don't think he has a problem. I think his tempestuous is part of what makes him brilliant. The diving is a, is a slightly other issue because I honestly believe that once players are cautioned two or three times, a reputation does stick. Uh, I think it sticks with referees and I think it sticks with, with fellow professionals. I, I, I honestly believe that. And I don't think that's a media thing. I think that's a, an in-the-game thing. Uh, and I think he needs to be careful because I'm not saying he dies every time, but I'm saying he just needs to be careful about... Um, basically, he needs to be careful from what you're saying, which is of getting an unfair reputation. Uh, and he would be silly to do that. Um, I, I think Deli Ali is a brilliant footballer and I think we're very lucky to have him. And I think if, if if he has problems, it's only in comparison with the brilliance that we've we've previously seen from him. And, and these are the first problems, if they are problems he's ever had. I'm not sure it's a... I don't know if it's a, a media narrative. I, I think most or nearly everyone I speak to is desperate for him to be as good as he can, if not anything else, because, it's because of England, if not because of Tottenham, um, because we want him to be... You know, we want him to be our spark. We want him to be our Paul Gascoigne. Um, you know, from Italian 90 that's what we want from him in 2018 and I think we believed he could be this time last year and I think now maybe we're starting to partly our own fault because we had too high expectations but I think they have been slightly scaled back Would he start in your England team in the summer? He would start in mine I don't think I, I don't. I think Gareth Southgate will go differently I think Southgate will go um, will go Kane he will go Sterling one side and he will go a kind of a mush of four of, of Lingard, I think he prefers Lingard over Ali at the moment. And in Lingard's defence, he's played better for England over the last three games, to Southgate's mind anyway. He does turn up, and in fairness to Lingard, he does turn up for mm. England. He's, I think, I think the, the thing Ali struggles with, and it's no, it's not criticism of him, it's a criticism of English football, is that he doesn't, at international level, he doesn't have a creator in Christian Eriksen. That is what England yeah. lack over everything. Everyone worries about goalkeepers and centre-backs. Mm. And we don't have a creator. We don't have someone that can pass through the lines. Um, Ali delights in what Christian Eriksen does they are a team to my mind they dovetail perfectly when both are on form Um, so without him I think Ali is left slightly 
slightly on his own international level. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. I think Adam Lallana is England's closest to a playmaker, um, but he's obviously had an off-season with uh, injuries, and it's likely to be that Sterling is locked into the team and it's competition between Lallana and Delhi, so he's unlikely to ever get that benefit of being in the team with a playmaker at the same time. Do you wonder if Delhi could be the playmaker? I mean, the way he's used the ball this year for Spurs shows that he's improving his creative vision, and he's certainly got the legs to play in midfield. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm so no. Even this this weekend um, against City, Delhi deep didn't work. It was it was terrible. It was it was painful to watch. Um, Ali's been at his best when he's allowed a little bit of freedom, which unfortunately doesn't fit in Southgate's tactics. Delhi still. Maybe one day could play deeper in a more kind of... But no, I think... No, keep him away from the central midfield area and play him further forward. I do for think sure. he's he's come on creatively, but there's mm-hmm. a difference between being a, a second striker who can also play a through ball and being, being Ericsson who yeah. sets the tempo and everything else. It's, very, it's actually, to me, it's very interesting how... Because when they first started getting the England team, it was Kane and Ali as the pair. Mm-hmm. You know they can create for each other. It's interesting to see how international work level it doesn't really work like that. Um, Kane doesn't get anywhere near as many chances for England, uh, and Ali doesn't do as much for England. There's no doubt about that. So it, 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 I love Christian Eriksen, and he is the glue that makes that stick together. They, they, the the others are brilliant in isolation, particularly Kane, but Eriksen's the glue that makes it stick together. Yeah, one one of the things I like about Southgate is he has his system. He, he's not going to try and force like a skulls into left wing. If that is what if that's the formation he's going to play with, then fully commit to it. There's no point trying to squeeze Ali into a position that doesn't work for him, and then all it would do is just destroy his confidence. I think Tottenham's failings against City were because we didn't have another player to play where we wanted Delhi, where they tried to put Delhi in. We did have a question from Anders THFC, which was why does Daniel prefer Vardy and Lingard over Kane and Ali for England, and is is that sort of why is that? Uh... The the Kane Vardy thing is, uh, I think Kane should start the first two games of the World Cup. Um, Kane's brilliance lies in the number of sh- not just in his finishing, but more so in the number of shots he ta- manages to take. Partly due to Christian Eriksen, as I've said, partly be- due to him himself, he creates his own chances sometimes. Um, England don't create as many chances for him, um, and so his goal ratio, basically his chance conversion, stays around the same, and he scores fewer goals. Um, in the first two games, they should create chances against Panama and Tunisia. In the third game against Belgium, a team that will push further forward, I think Jamie Vardy... I, I've come full circle on Jamie Vardy because I don't particularly warm to him at all. But I think he's probably the best counter-attacking striker in the Premier League at the moment. He is absolutely exceptional playing on the last the last defender's shoulder. And if that works better against Belgium, I hope that Gareth Southgate, and what he's shown so far, is that he will pick a team fit for the occasion. I've I've changed from my original viewpoint, which was play Vardy over Kane, simply because I don't think it'll happen. But if you could play three five two and play them both, yeah, and play Kane maybe slightly deeper, then I think that works. We've got that do. flexibility now with, yeah, the, with yeah. the back line that we can we can go to a back three, and that means you can potentially play Kane off Vardy. And Kane certainly showing signs of, um, of of improving his his own creative passing as well. The number of first time balls that he's put through mm. this year to on rushing players is just phenomenal. Kane's improvement this season in his first touch layoff um, normally a striker and, and I love Romelu Lukaku but what he does as a striker is he collects the ball to feet takes a touch plays someone into play if he's playing well um, Kane has managed to go beyond that and he does that all in one touch now and because of 
how they train and they train every day and they know where the runs are going to be. There's always a Ben Davies or there's always a, a Kieran Trippier or there's always a, a Moussa Dembele running on to collect the ball. And it's, mm. it's so, so effective to, to that switch of play. Incredible. Daniel, when I um, first contacted you, you and we spoke about things that we could could chat about today, you you mentioned um, this ability of Pochettino to replace from within, and and it's something that is it has come up a few times, but it's not something we focused on. So I thought it'd be really interesting to spend some time talking about it. Mm. What did you mean by that? I mean, we were specifically talking about the Alderweireld yeah situation at that point. Yeah, although that you could look to to Carl Walker and Kieran Trippier, and you could look to Ben Davies and Danny Rose. Mm. I think it stems from the fact that Pochettino knows he cannot financially compete with with Manchester City or Manchester United and perhaps even Arsenal and Chelsea as well. Tottenham have paid more than £30 million for a player once in their history. Chelsea have done it six times since the start of 2016. So you are not competing with those. You are in terms of league position, but not in terms of transfer market. So he realises there are two ways to go about that. One is smart recruitment. And I think to an extent you've done that, although... It's clearly been iffy with some signings. There's no doubt about that. Um, the other way he does it is by creating a team morale in which everyone either has to be with him or against him. And for that to work, there can be no distractions. And he has seen with Carl Walker at the end of last season that there clearly was a distraction there. I don't think it was as cut and dry that Walker knows Manchester City are going to make this bid and he will go. But I think Walker went to him. In fact, I know Walker went to him and said, I think I want to leave this summer. And I think there will be an offer coming for me. And Pochettino said, you know, I think there will be an offer coming for me. I'll deal with it. And his way of dealing with it is by going, I'm going to move you away from the first team picture um, and trust the person behind you. He did exactly the same with, with Ben Davies at the start of this season. He went into this campaign knowing he had two months, not just to play because Rose was injured, but he had two months with all of Pochettino's goodwill behind him to go, you can basically, you can make this first team position your own if you're good enough. And the power that gives to a, a reserve team player it is no coincidence that Davies has stepped up and Trippier has stepped up and I believe Davison Sanchez will step up if Alderweireld leaves um, whether that can continue ad infinitum I don't know we've seen on a very lower level with Southampton it's very hard to do it and it, 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 that's when I, the point about smart recruitment I mentioned comes in um, but there's no reason to doubt him right now because he has shown time and time again that it, it works and, and I honestly believe it comes from not just the ability of those reserve team players, but how special they're made to feel by Pochettino. Yeah, I was going to mention Southampton because they've had to really do it at an accelerated rate. Fortunately, at Spurs, we haven't had that. But I am concerned about this, that as great as Davies and as good as Trippi has been, they still are not quite at the level of those players they replaced, which is the fear that you can keep doing this for so mm. long until... Eventually, you know, Pochettino's not a magician. He can't. Mm. He can't keep making um, like a Harry Winks turn into Musa Dembele because no. it doesn't happen. No, and 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 this is why I meet um, at pains always to say about Pochettino and Spurs: take a step back and realise where they've come. Because if a setback season comes, and if Tottenham finish, you know, by budgets they should finish fifth or sixth next season. And if they do finish fifth or sixth next season, there will be supporters of Tottenham and other clubs who say oh, Pochettino's lost it because that's how the, that's how it works now. And that would be incredibly unfair. Um, as I say, it's about not normalising overachievement. And, and I agree it will be hard. Um, Southampton paid for their poor recruitment. Um, they paid for believing Pellegrino in his interview, job interview, when he said that he would play attractive football and he was the man to do it because he wasn't. He, he, it wasn't true. 
um, and they believed it and they swallowed it and it's easy for clubs to do that and they're going to pay the heaviest price for it um, I hope Tottenham are smarter than that uh, but you're right you're absolutely right Barty they, they can't continue doing it forever yeah. we had a question from Alex Kaufman on Twitter he said is next year the Spurs start off well enough to truly challenge for the title and can they do it with a Vertonghen Sanchez backline or will Toby be missed if he departs uh, that's two wildly different questions uh, I Spurs' ability to challenge for the title is much more dependent on the performance of other clubs than it is on themselves. I think we have set a rough path that we can meet and if there is a sloppiness from combined three teams at the same time, then that title is up for grabs. I don't think that, that we can realistically raise another level on top of where we are because if you look at how ridiculously good City are, mm. um, we just don't have the billions to achieve that. Second question uh, on Vertonghen and Sanchez. I think they are fantastic pairing. I think they're as good as any centre-back pairing in the league. Um, but for me, Toby will be missed not because of his own brilliance and his own creative brilliance, um, but because I think we are still at our best when we play three centre-backs at the same time and play Wanyama in front of them, who requires three centre-backs behind him. Um, so I do think that we, we should be um, prioritising, replacing or retaining out of Erod. And what's your gut feel? Do you think he'll be going? It looks like it, doesn't it? Yes. Um, yeah, I agree. I prefer us when we play three centre-backs and I think that would have helped us immeasurably this week. Um, and we will have to probably replace out of Erod. I do think he will go. Yeah, I think he will go. I think he's, his history repeated with the other players. And the other thing... Tottenham are going to struggle with next season is that with the squad size they have in the world post World Cup, um, because Manchester City and Manchester United will spend bigger this summer, um, and so will other clubs. So will Chelsea and Arsenal, I suspect. And um, when you have a squad that has had pretty much continuous football for you know best part of eighteen months, it's it's especially with the intensity Tottenham play at, it's going to be hard. Well, we know the kind of players that we might be looking at, and Priya Ramesh told us uh, a fair amount about the. The two centre-backs that are doing the business in the Eredivisie at the moment, so hopefully Spurs have got their scouts watching them on a regular basis, and, and that might be who we're looking at. I mean, Foyth, to me, has looked really, really good when he's played, but he's he's so inexperienced, he's so young, he's very slight. It would be an awful lot to ask him to step in, even in three, I think, for, for any time soon. I mean, I imagine he'll get lots of game time in the pre-season friendlies, and if he does well, then I, I assume he'll play occasionally as a rotation against smaller teams games where we expect to have lots of the ball because he's clearly very competent in possession probably I dare I say one of our best centre-backs in possession and that's you know with high competition as well he's excellent on the ball I would be really frightened if we went into next season with Foyth as one of our three main centre-backs I would be scared I, I was really excited by his transfer and I was hoping that he'd have come on a little bit by now and, and um, getting some league minutes and that hasn't happened. Um, so yeah, I think it's that's probably not what we're looking at doing. Um, and yet you mentioned Delict, who would definitely be my choice. He's the one, isn't he? He's, he really does look ready for the, the, the step up. Well, I mean, it's just it's this already well-trodden path yeah. of Vertonghen, Sanchez and Underveld going from my axe, maybe not directly, to Spurs and, and playing beautiful football. 
Fantastic. And we, what would be really nice is if we could send them a couple of our young players in, in exchange. Marcus Edwards on loan for a year, get him away from uh, some troubles here and uh, give him some football in, 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 in that league and see what he can do. Uh, we have a question from Ted Trunk, which is specifically directed at Daniel. Um, how much are you enjoying Danny Rose's fall from grace? Do you want to give some context? Yeah, there? so the context was that um, I'm not a Spurs fan and I thought he was brilliant last season with Spurs, but I, like a number of England players... He's not. He was not a player who would ever. Not that he's not convinced from England, but that England weren't getting Tottenham Danny Rose. Um, that's not necessarily his fault. That's partly England's fault. But they weren't getting. Um, and yeah, I didn't think it would go this badly this season. I didn't expect him to do an interview on the eve of the season where he talked about moving on from the club. And I definitely didn't think he'd do that completely unauthorized, which is what he did. Um, but again, Pochettino's managed it brilliantly. Um, <laughs> Any player now considering doing the same looks just looks completely stupid because he's he's lost out of it. He's now he's effectively now scratching around for a new club this summer. Um, if reports be to be believed, Manchester United would prefer to go for an Alexander or Kieran Tierney rather than Rose at the price. And so his agent is is desperately looking for someone to pay fifty million for him. And there's not that many people to do that, especially when one of the clubs, Manchester City, already have Mendy, and another of the clubs in you know, Real Madrid have Marcello, and yeah. I, I just don't see it. I just don't see it happening. I, I, I see him struggling for that move, so I take no delight in it. But he he's done very very badly out of what was an interview that was never going to get him a huge amount, anything other than a huge amount of stick. Yeah, the only thing I think Pochettino did wrong was not selling him straight away while his value was yeah. at his absolute peak, because mm-hmm. it was clear to me that it could only go one way after that interview. Yeah, I think I think there was an element of, it was so, if he'd have done it in end of June, I think maybe he would have done, but I think, it, I think Pochettino was worried that if he'd have sold him at that point, it would have looked like, you know, people jumping ship mm-hmm. um, and could have harmed morale going into the season. But no, I, in hindsight, it certainly looks like the right decision. To In 2020 hindsight, sell Rose <laughs> for 50 million, buy Ryan Sessegnon for then 15, 20 million, yep. and you're sorted. But now Sessegnon's price has probably doubled, so I imagine. We think Danny Rose is done at Tottenham. I mean, I'm pretty sure he is. Yeah. Unless we can't find a taker and he has to stay. That's quite a sad story to imagine, isn't He's it? He'll live out the rest of his contract trying to find odd jobs around Tottenham. <laughs> he, can, he can supplement his uh, odd jobs with some performances for under-23s, perhaps. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I don't, I don't see it going any other way. Do you? I still have hope that it will come good. I still have hope. I have faith. He's still great. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. We're still a fantastic player in Danny Rose, but he's nowhere near close to his best form. He's no. not even close to his average form from last year, to be honest. Um, so Sean Gormley uh, on Twitter said, do you think Oliver Burke would have been better off moving to somewhere like Spurs, who he was heavily linked with around leaving Forest, than going to Leipzig? And who of Forrest's current crop has the most potential? Uh, the Burtwood sale was weird in that, that our owner at the time was looking to, um, uh, I'm not going to call it asset stripping deliberately, um, but it was looking to sell players quickly uh, and get some money in. And he sold to the one club who agreed to pay the fee up front uh, with you know, no sell-on clauses, no instalments, just paying the fee up front, which is what he did. Um, I think Burt would have been better at Spurs, but I, I don't think he would have made the first team at Spurs. I don't think he's good enough. Uh, I think he was a, a young player who was very strong at 17-18 and has now kind of been found out. He's actually done all right for West Brom, but mm-hmm. it would be good for him to be back in the Championship. Uh, in terms of our current crop, there's two obvious ones, and that's the one everyone thinks is Ben Brereton. Um, 
who's 18 and did brilliant things against Arsenal. But he's a central striker and it's very hard to get minutes as a backup central striker now. Yeah. Most Premier League teams already have the one they want. Uh, so I'll go for Joe Worrell, who is a 21-year-old centre-back who has played for the under-21s now. Uh, he won a major tournament with England last year. And yeah, he will be in the Premier League very soon, I think. He's a very good player. Yeah, I've seen yeah. him for the England under 20s. He's very, he's very modern in that he's on, the, you know, very comfortable on the ball, but he's also a big lad. Yeah, yeah, he's a, he's a great defender. He's, he's slight. He's kind of a cross between John Stones and Harry Maguire in a sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, really, yeah. really like him. Really good modern centre back. I can see him getting snapped up straight away. As a as a Forest fan, how do you feel about when your players leave and join another club? Do you still support them, or do you go like full Tottenham mode and call them snakes? <laughs> no, I. I... I'm quite philosophical about it in that, t- to my mind, Forest is a club that's been run badly for a long time. And although Southampton have come a cropper this season, mm-hmm. to my mind, their way of doing it, especially if you're a championship club, is the only way to do it. We yeah. lose money every month. The only way we get out of that is by, or should get out of that, is by investing in our academy and selling the players off for the highest fee. And we did that with Burke, to be fair. Mm-hmm. Um, we didn't do it with Lascelles because we would have held on for him for another season. I think we'd got a lot, lot more money. We did it with Cardalo. Um and we will keep doing that, I think. And I have no... Listen, any player that leaves Nottingham Forest to join a Premier League club cannot be blamed whatsoever. I don't care if it's that their agents turn their head. It has to be a better move for them. Um, you're a long time retired and you're certainly a long time retired if you go and break a leg in training next week. So this idea that players should show less ambition and stay with their local club is, to my mind, a misnomer. Because, as I say, it's a short career. And now I wouldn't blame any player for leaving. And especially when with a bin fire we are... Um, or certainly have been hopefully on the change now you kind of forget how much of a production line Forrest had been I mean you mentioned mm. Lascelles there who was a player I really like by the way mm. I actually think he's an outside shot for the England squad I think he might go to Chelsea this summer really? Or where, maybe, I think I'll rephrase that I know that Chelsea want him this summer uh, whether he goes or not is a different matter with you know he's got a big affiliation with Rafa at the moment but yeah, he wow, is. Yeah. He is I actually. mean, I hadn't considered that he would go to a top four club, but he's definitely good enough. He's mm. a really, really, really steady player. So impressed with him. I mean, in a sense, it's quite easy to play centre back under Benitez because he's, he's, he, if there's one thing that man can do, it's organise the yeah, defence. Yeah, he's perfect. But he's, he's really competent in possession as yeah, well. He's only 23 like, as well. You know, he's young, still a young centre back. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah, he's mature. I like, really, really like Jamal. But yeah, we've, we have had a good run. It's the only thing that saved us. Who's the, who's the academy manager? The Gary Brazil is the academy manager who who was care, took over as caretaker when um, before Karanka uh, was. I thought Karanka was appointed. So yeah, he is very very popular. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there would there would have been no Forest fan complaining if he'd have been given the job full time. Actually, but it's it's great to have him with the academy. Yeah, fantastic. And we have one more question, which is the uh, the typical hipster question, which I'm going to I'm going <laughs> to keep in. So Michael Leonard on Facebook, and I, I'm going to butcher this name because I really do not know how you pronounce it. Is Hussein Awar the closest player in play style to Dembele on the market? Yeah, I'm getting worried about how important he is to our midfield and how we go about replacing such a rare kind of player. So uh, I wrote a three part series for Real Sport 101, looking at various Musa Dembele type players. Um, and I came up with uh, Jean-Michael Serri, who is a bit different, but is brilliant. Um, Mario Lamina of Southampton, who has all the talent, but is maybe not quite there maturity-wise, like a, maybe a couple of our own younger players. Um, and then a player who didn't make the list, but has been tweeted to me daily since, uh, Undombele, who um, is not only similar in style, but in name also. Is it literally the same spelling with Undom on the front? Uh, yeah. Well, that's, <laughs> that's amazing. So, yeah, 
What's where does he play? Uh, uh, it's League One. I can't remember which. Club. Do you know this guy who's some Aewat? Is it Aewat? No, and I think that might there might be a spelling mistake in there. Okay, okay. yeah, I'm. I'm he, he, if he's the player I remember, and I am not, I'm not pretending to see a lot of Leon this season. Uh, he plays for Leon, but he's a bit more attacking. He's a bit more box to box, whereas Dembele's kind of taking that more out of his game. I don't, I don't think anyone replaces Dembele, but that's fine. I think you just have to look at change the team rather than changing the player because mm. I don't think there is a like for like that you'll buy I don't people were talking about Matteo Kovacic before mm. but again he's different but I don't think you can replace him so uh, Lamina's one that everyone's spoken about and I've watched him four or five times and I'm still not seeing it with him I, I like get Hjöberg. that he's, I like Hjöberg. Hjöberg's the one I like as well I really really like him um, Lamina to me is great one on one and not great at most other things he's very raw very rough around the edges He's incredibly powerful in possession, and so I can see whether's similarity with Dembele, but he has not got anywhere near the same tactical discipline as Dembele. Mm-hmm. Whereas Hjoiberg, I think he potentially has got that. He's a smart player, but He'll also... He'll be going cheap this summer, that's... Yeah, they, they, will, so. they look a mess. I feel so bad for Southampton fans. <laughs> They've just really been through it the last few years. Um, but Hjoiberg is definitely one that I would, um, I'd be looking at if I was in, involved in scouting for Spurs. What we always do at the end of our podcast is, is recommend an article, a book or a podcast, and we call this further reading. So who wants to go first this week? Um, well, it's the we've been talking about James Richardson, but it's the BT Sport Football Italia documentary that they released um, a couple of weeks ago. And it's um, actually, I watched it the other day and it's got Ray Wilkins in it. And it must be like one of the very last um, interviews that he ever did. And he's in it, and really nice anecdotes. And they also talk to Paul Lins, who tells a great story about going to Nicola Berti's house party. And it really <laughs> is that kind of like rock and roll football channel four where they kind of let them do whatever they wanted. So it's really good insights into all of that. And the amazing thing is they, they paid like £900,000, I think, for one year's TV rights. And it's just how it, just the success of it and how it was a group of guys that didn't really know much about it. James Richardson wasn't even like a football fan at the time. So it's a really nice documentary. Um, they talked to Signori and other stars from the time. It's great. Nice. Uh, this is a little bit cheeky because I was on the latest episode, but uh, specifically the five previous episodes of the Morons podcast, which is on the team of John O'Shea's channel, um, which uh, is not entirely dissimilar to what we've done here. We sort of talk about, they sort of talk about football in a more abstract, talking about talking about football, that sort of thing. Um, really good. I'll go for book then. Uh, I, it's quite old, but I plug it whenever I can. Uh, it's a book called uh, Floodlights and Touchlines which is a history of spectator sport, uh, but but less dry than that sounds. <laughs> it basically goes straight from like gladiatorial Rome to Premier League about the culture of watching sport live. It's, mm-hmm. it's absolutely brilliant. Who wrote that? Yep. Uh, <laughs> Rob, Rob, Rob Stein, I think, is his name. Interesting. Okay, yeah. I've not even heard of that one. It's not been on my radar. Yeah, no, it's great. Great tip off. Um, I'm going to blow smoke up Nathan's ass and mention the video analysis he did before the um, City-Liverpool match, which was... Bang on the money, and how smug were you when Liverpool destroyed City? I am perpetually <laughs> smug, so it had no effects on that. <laughs> it was insane how right you were, though. I mean, yes, people did see it coming to some degree, but everyone just assumed that City might score an early goal and then go on to blow Liverpool away. But well, they did. They did score an early goal. Yeah, I'm talking about the first leg. Sorry. Oh, sorry. Yeah, um, but Nathan predicted that Liverpool would basically 
lay off the defenders and then when the ball came into midfield then just go hell for leather and, uh, and cutting off the, the press the, the passing lanes then and, and basically pressing their their midfield rather than their defense and that's exactly how the game panned out so so well done to you sir <laughs> I, th- I think i'm going to do a part two on that and look at it in a bit more detail as it sort of did occur so yeah but there you go. Nathan does know stuff, so do hire him. Um, so where can people read more of your content online, Daniel? Uh, Football 365. Yeah, totally football show. Premier League TV occasionally. An incessantly boring stats-based Twitter account. <laughs> at, at Daniel Story 85 Terrific, <laughs> terrific follow. I've been... I, I, I followed you, you for You are quite uh, literally too kind. <laughs> <laughs> and Bardi, you're on Bardi TFC. Yeah, and we've got... Um, if you pull your finger out, we are editing the finder edition of the, the tactical edition of the fanzine. We certainly are. Which yes, I've done most of it. You just need to start sorting out your bits. <laughs> there's a job. There's a job, for, there's well. a job for me tonight. Then um, and Nathan at Nathan A. Clark. The brand is strong. The brand. <laughs> And I'm at Windy Coys. Thank you for listening. Uh, we'll be back at some point. And if you do want to tell people about our podcast, that would be great. It's the fight in. It's the fight in.